1: Engineering your success.
0: Mets pitcher Noah Syndergaard has a torn ulnar collateral ligament in his right elbow and will undergo
2: Tommy John surgery, ending his season before it begins. The Mets will be without Syndergaard for all of 2020, for however long the season lasts, and probably into 2021, which is his final year of team control. It's a significant blow to a Mets team that was counting on Syndergaard to be a number two starter behind Cy Young Award winner Jacob deGrom, everyone moves up now. Marcus Stroman fills in that number two spot and the Mets will fill out their rotation with Steven Matz, Rick Porcello, and Michael Wacha. But a significant blow for a Mets team that has counted on Noah Syndergaard
0: since the 2015 season to be one of the best pitchers in baseball and will now be without him for the foreseeable future. It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Thursday, March the 26th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the Podcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Send me an email, mikesilva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Welcome in, everybody, and I hope you're happy and healthy and as safe as you can be under the current circumstances. And I got so many great emails from everybody about basically my show, talking about the reaction to what's going on right now in the country and the and around the world and, and whether or not continuing while we have this baseball on pause period to do podcasts and to talk. And obviously, when there's news, there'll be a reason for a podcast. and There is news. And I probably would have done a podcast anyway, but hearing from you guys and basically hearing how this small little universe that I've worked pretty hard to create gives you, oh, well, about an hour worth of, I guess, entertainment or gets you away from watching the news, whatever it is that you've been doing. And it it brings you a little bit of happiness and joy. makes me feel really good. So I want to thank everybody for that. And I'm very humbled by it. And I never, ever uh, take it for granted. I've always told you guys that. So I appreciate that. Why today? Why did I come to you today? Because normally it's the end of the week. But today's opening day. It would have been opening day. And it would have been Jacob deGrom on the mound. And obviously that's not going to happen. And and not only is it not opening day. and, And because of specifically in New York, how surreal things are around here, even these nice some of these spring like days that have been happening to us over the last you know seven to ten days don't feel the same you don't have that optimism you don't have that excitement about baseball and 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 obviously there's a good reason for that I don't have to get into all that but what I was hoping here on opening day and on this uh edition of the program is to at least look towards the future, look towards you know what could be, and maybe use the past as a barometer. So joining me, and I had a chance to catch up with him uh, actually yesterday evening, is uh, Jeff Katz. Now Jeff Katz is the former mayor of Cooperstown. He wrote a book uh, a few years back, Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball. And I think it's no secret, and even though Rob Manfred came out yesterday and hopes to ramp things up by May or mid-May, which, depending on where you are in the country, is pretty optimistic. We're going to have a truncated season, and it's going to be something different, and it's going to be something interesting, and I think out of all this tragedy, out of all this craziness, if you can use it as a tool when things do settle down to improve the game uh, and learn maybe from what they, they did right and wrong from the 1981 split season, which clearly that situation was way different. It was an economic issue. It was... A labor issue back then. Now it's a, a world health crisis issue. Um, You can move forward and maybe move forward in a positive way because I think, uh, especially here in New York, whether you're a Mets fan or a Yankees fan, you're going to need something when this is all over to start to move forward because I think people right now feel like they need permission to even live within the craziness. And I've seen it with my own eyes and I've seen people basically, you know, whether they're going to work or you're talking to them, they feel like they have to engulf in all the news of all this and and guess what you don't have to i mean if you're healthy and and safe and and in your home and you're with your family i mean you got to try to do as much as you can to move away from the news you just have to because it'll drive you nuts it'll scare the you know what out of you and it'll drive you crazy so hopefully this podcast does that hopefully a chance and i had a really long sit down here with jeff and i think it's a fun enjoyable segment And that'll come up uh, in just a minute or two. So the big news, let me give you my take. And I'm I'm not going to go too long into the whole Noah Syndergaard thing. So on the normal circumstances, this would be, oh, opening day's ruined. The season's ruined. Syndergaard, uh, Tommy John surgery, certainly a shock. You didn't see that coming. You didn't see any indication throughout the spring. There wasn't even reports of pain, which tells you how well the Mets are doing right now with putting a lid on leaks and nonsense and All the things that have plagued them for a very, very long time, especially last year. Because of what's going on in the country and the world, it it hit Mets fans, and it got some debate on Twitter, but not nearly what it would have been. The snark, of course, I think people are realizing that at this point, a Tommy John surgery for an elite pitcher with a New York baseball team certainly doesn't deserve the angst that is going on around you, so... Uh, leave that where it is. I don't think anybody is surprised. This has been predicted for many, many years. You've heard scouts say it. Tom House back in 2017 was very critical of Syndergaard and his weightlifting and how he bulked up. You know, I don't. I think Syndergaard, the shame of it all, was really trying to be more of a thinking pitcher this year. He was using some of the technology that the Mets were employing. I know he was using it to show off his body, which, you know, it is what it is. But I do believe, at least from looking at it from the outside in, that that he was trying to say, hey, how do I change as a pitcher? How do I evolve? And maybe this Tommy John surgery is exactly what he needs to do that. Now, the shame of it is, it's going to cost him a lot of money. And it's going to put his Mets career maybe at an end, depending how quickly he could come back. And also, depending how quickly he could get the surgery. I know that that's becoming somewhat of a controversial situation. And it may be a while before he could get it uh, based on on the medical code of ethics and, and the rules and regulations that are, are being put out there right now because of the the virus and, and the need for so many resources in different parts of the country. So what do you learn uh, from all this? First of all, you never have too much pitching. The whole Steven Match, trading him, the Mets have too many pitchers, which I laughed at just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about baseball. Just rings true. You never have enough pitching. You need at least seven or eight starters to get through a season Uh, with doubleheaders, especially with the season coming up the way it is, where it'd be like the sprint. You'll be jamming as many games as possible into a short period of time. You're going to need doubleheaders. The Mets are—this is a blow. This is without a doubt a a blow. I also think you have to learn from this and and understand why maybe the Mets are being more cautious, specifically with pitchers, on long-term deals. Everybody wants to sign these pitchers when they're under arbitration control and save costs and maybe get them at a cheaper rate, and there's a value to that, and you have to weigh the risk-reward, but even as you get towards the end of it and you get like where DeGrom was when you give him those big contracts, you really have to use whatever tools and resources and science as much as you can because nothing is a perfect prediction. There's no model to predict a person's health. There's so many factors that go into it. The long-term deal for a pitcher is normally a bad thing because you're going to probably pay a couple of bad years at the end of it, and, and it's a sunk cost. And depending on what kind of payroll you have, depending what market you're in, that could be very debil- debilitating to your payroll. So long-term deals, before you cry and go crazy about why they wait so long, this is why. This is why they waited for uh, uh, the Grom. This is why they waited on Wheeler. And now you could see, when it's a perfect example with the Wheeler situation— They want to try to sign guys that they feel have a reasonable expectation of staying healthy. And certainly I think this is going to hurt Syndergaard's ability to get a longer-term contract after he comes back next year, depending on how he pitches and how he shows how healthy he is. Because even though most pitchers come back from this, and at his age he should be able to come back from this and pitch reasonably towards what he was before. Maybe not quite at 100. Maybe he's at 97, 98, whatever it may be. But how his body will hold up going forward. Does this mean that he's a, a, a less of a health risk because he's gone through this? I think that all depends on how he evolves as a pitcher, and maybe this year off can be some self-reflection and help him uh, go into the next phase of his uh, career. Clearly, the Mets' playoff hopes took a, a huge hit. Going into this season, you had three pitchers that you could reasonably expect to be in the top 25 of all of baseball in terms of elite performance. Each one of those guys, Stroman, DeGrom, Syndergaard, especially Syndergaard and Stroman when they weren't at their elite. We know DeGrom is elite, but Syndergaard and Stroman, even though they may pitch like a two or a three, you know they could give you number one stuff on a given night, and that's what makes them dangerous in a short series, and that's what mitigates losing streaks, and that's why I was so bullish on the Mets. Now, remember, they had potentially at this point, if you put Stroman... Wheeler, DeGrom, and Syndergaard, you had four at some point in the top 25, which that's huge. I mean, that's a huge advantage, and it doesn't really change my opinion on on signing Wheeler. I think they saw a five-year contract. They saw the money that was being poured in. They have decisions to make on Stroman. They have decisions to make on Syndergaard, and they just felt that uh, Wheeler was not the best bet. Did they think Syndergaard was a better bet? I don't think that. I think they wanted to see more out of Syndergaard. And certainly maybe they like Strowman a lot more. We don't know. So I'm, I'm not second-guessing Wheeler. There's no doubt their rotation from the second half of last year now, which was already going to be slightly worse because the Wheeler-Porcello trade off wasn't one-to-one. Not that I thought they ever were planning on keeping all these pitchers at that cost. I think they always planned on swapping Strowman for Wheeler. I think that was, that's was been clear. So, uh that drop-off means first you have to rely on Michael Waka a lot more and Waka is a a guy that has pitched elite and pitched elite in the postseason in the past but it's been a long time since he's been effective now he gets a chance to really earn that contract he doesn't have to worry about being a uh, one of those openers he doesn't have to worry about coming out of the bullpen and trying to earn those incentives so they're really going to be relying on Waka Uh, it's going to put more pressure on a David Peterson to develop. And and with the way that the season has been truncated, the development part of the season, the minor leagues which is totally up in the air guys like Kevin Smith uh, a young pitcher that they've been high on that may be similar to 2015 when Syndergaard and Mats came in later in the year when the Mets had injuries to Dylan G and Nice and they were trying to limit Harvey to a certain degree Uh, that's going to be uh, challenging to come away with uh, some some value there in the back end. So you're relying on the Corey Oswalds and the Walker Lockets, and and maybe they could go out and sign a veteran and see what's going on. And uh, as the season goes on, who knows how the trade deadline's going to look, who knows how the postseason's going to look. I think you're going to have a very interesting setup when it's all said and done. Uh, so it's hard right now to predict how this is going to impact the Mets, other than the fact that in a shortened season, which this will be, where you're jamming as many games as possible into a short span of time, losing a starter, losing a Syndergaard Hurts all the time, losing him on top of the schedule makes this even harder. So, uh, Seth Lugo and Gazelleman are going to have to, uh, you know, maybe be a bigger part because now it goes from a team that you want to get through seven on three of the five days, and you could get a, maybe eight. And then go to the back end of the bullpen. It's a team that four and five, and maybe with Matt's uh, moving up to three. Because now Matt's really is on the clock. He's been working with Jeremy Heffner, and Now he has a chance to really step up and fill a void. Uh, you need to now maybe bridge the gap on innings six and seven a lot more than you thought. Now the good thing is they brought in Batances. They got Lugo. They've got Gazelman. Hopefully Familia continues to show some of the progress he showed in spring training. Uh, Diaz could slide into the ninth and not create some chaos with the hierarchy. Let's all hope about that. But uh, quite simply, you don't know. You don't know how that's going to play out. And uh, when it's all said and done, uh, right now, the most important thing is taking a step back, trying to get the world healthy, trying to get the world back on its axis, and, and waiting for baseball to come back and be that, escape that I think people, will they need now, but they will desperately need when it's time to pick up all the pieces and and what have you. So the first Thunderbolt, I call them Thunderbolts of 2020 as the Mets, uh, you know, trying to begin their quest, which would have began today to make the postseason and move forward and try to get into the playoffs and compete for a championship, compete for a pennant. We'll see about that. Uh, But remember, Steven Matz right now becomes a huge, huge, huge part of this uh, equation. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see what he he can do to slide in. Statistically, remember something. Syndergaard, and this was brought up in the New York Post in an article today. Syndergaard's overall stats this year, due to his inconsistency, were not good. He was essentially a league average pitcher. And a lot of times he was significantly below uh, in the first half. You could get that from Porcello. You could get that from Waka when you do statistically. The problem is the upside. The peripherals indicate that Syndergaard's a lot better than that. And the nights where he dominates and even dominates really good lineups, you're not necessarily going to get that from Walker and Porcello. And if they do give you that, that's going to be a very rare exception, not the rule. Whereas Syndergaard, you expect on any given night. If those guys give it to you, it's like, oh, that's that's a nice bonus. But you don't ever expect that from those guys because they're more mid to back end of the rotation type of guys. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, Jeff Katz, the former mayor of Cooperstown, author of the book, book, excuse me, Split Season, will join me. We'll chat about that season, what we can learn from that, kind of get a feel up in Cooperstown about how they're handling the delay in the baseball season, how they're staying healthy and safe. And, uh, and waiting for baseball in the world to kind of come back to normal as soon as possible. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. And enjoy the rest of the show. And joining me, Jeff Katz. Uh, Split season 1981 is the book. He's the former mayor of Cooperstown. It's opening day, no baseball, but let's talk a little baseball. Jeff, uh, welcome to the program. Crazy times right now, and uh, it's hard to do podcasting and to talk baseball, but so many people have reached out to me and said, hey, keep it going, keep doing shows. And I figured what better way to start off, I guess, a baseball season that's delayed by talking about a season that was wacky and delayed as well. How are you?
2: I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, glad to be on. And yeah, you know, part of the split season story in 1981 was how did people fill their time uh, when baseball disappeared. So we're certainly in a different type of scenario for different reasons. But People are looking for content and how to get their uh, days feeling a little uh, normal, which is difficult.
0: That's interesting that you brought up how people are passing time. So now the sports fan, which I, I think they're still kind of in shell shock by everything that's going on in the in the country and the world. So I'm not quite sure that baseball or sports is higher on their list. But you see people looking at old games. I know that there's been some yeah. live tweeting uh, you know, pretending that you're watching an old postseason game, and some journalists are doing some live tweeting. Back in 1981, now the circumstances were different. There was uh, a strike mid-season, and it was basically the summer. So they're they're basically ruining the, the 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 baseball summer at that point, or a large chunk of the summer. What did people do back then? What did you learn doing this book back then to pass the time? So
2: it's, what was different about then to now is really what disappeared was Major League Baseball. So there was still Minor League Baseball, um, but it was really kind of like a media vacuum. So what you had was uh, like the local sp- uh, networks um, in St. Louis, KMOX did like new versions of old Cardinals games. So they'd have uh, Jack Buck and Mike Shannon doing a re- creation of like a 1964 world series game that mike shannon played in so (laughs) so there was kind of weird kind of mike shannon the announcer talking about mike shannon the kid about what a hothead he was um so you had the local stations looking to fill time you had the networks nbc really at the time um playing some old games 1975 world series games which was still relatively current in nineteen eighty one. Uh and then you had a you know a much healthier newspaper culture where people were writing almost like fictional accounts of things or re uh, printing old game columns uh and stories. So people filled the void. You know, for fans they could still congregate. Um the Padres did a big kind of what they referred to as fantasy baseball where they the Padres really stunk that year. Um, but they kind of created this fantasy season where the Padres got hot and they had thousands of people at the Jack Murphy Stadium parking lot listening to the Padres announcers, hanging out, having beer. And, you know, the lack of being able to congregate now for people is is such a different type of thing. But I kind of see it on Twitter. Like you're saying, people are tweeting about games they're watching, Um, I'm a baseball card collector. There's a whole baseball card community like showing what they have, showing what they're getting. So people are finding ways to stay connected.
0: It's interesting listening to you talk about how people dealt with no baseball in 1981 and pre-internet, way pre-internet. And it's almost a time gone by now where... um, you know, people are getting back out into the world. Maybe not with groups, but maybe they're doing some solo or with their significant other or their family. Those that they you know, obviously you know know are healthy and they trust. And you're kind of going back in time a little bit, not without the gathering, but there's only so much you can do staying in the house. So people are trying to say, "Well, I'm tired of this," and that's what people are running to on a normal day. So just listening to you talk about what they did in 1981, it's uh, it's almost like ancient times.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I tell you, I mean, I'm 57. It feels like ancient times. It feels like a a really completely different world. I mean, virus aside, you know, just the way people kind of consume entertainment and sports and media. But I have to say, like, one of the things uh, you mentioned about people watching old games, like, one of the things I've really been enjoying is jumping on YouTube and watching, like, the 1974 world series movie uh when i was like 12 when that world series happened so i remember it very well but just to see it again um watching things like the 1975 Mets, you know highlight film that they used to use for promo it, it's really it captures something and I'm, I'm not like mr nostalgia that much um because things were never as good as you think they were <laughs> in retrospect but um But I was a Met fan until they traded Seaver in 77. Uh, So to kind of recapture that era when I was a Met fan is (laughs) kind of sweet. So I've been finding ways to fill uh, my sports needs. Because it is, you know, particularly tomorrow, you would think we'd all be watching games or watching highlights. I still read the box scores every morning. I've done that like my whole life. So to not have that as part of my morning routine for the foreseeable future is jarring. I mean, I can't remember the last day I missed a box score. It was probably like in the 70s.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Jeff Katz, split season 1981, Fernando Mania, the Bronx Zoo, and the strike that saved baseball. Jeff is also the former Mayor of Cooperstown. And we'll get into the book, and I want to talk about how, you know, maybe – being optimistic, uh, saying that there will be a baseball season. Cause I believe there will be, um, yeah. you're over there up in Cooperstown and that's the, you know, I don't want to say the birthplace of baseball. That's where everyone's kind of going right now. Right. Uh, to, you know, with the hall of fame, Derek Jeter, all that stuff. Uh, it's kind of a weird situation. Now you don't know what's going to happen with the hall of fame ceremony. Here's Derek Jeter who would have brought maybe a record crowd. Uh, yeah. Yankees fans, of course. I know there's a Met show. Yankees fans, and it's got to be a little sad as you're in that town that's always got some kind of baseball activity. Where now you, Cooperstown's not an essential business; they're not going to be open. Uh, talk yeah. about that because it's got to be it's, weird for um, you as someone who who's run the town.
2: Yeah, it's it's very strange. I was mayor um, from 2012 to 2018, um, and even towards the end of that period we were already looking towards Jeter's induction everybody knew it was going to happen and you know all signs pointed to it being the biggest ever right now the biggest is Ripken in 07 it was about 80,000 so there were talks about 100,000 or more um publicly the hall the last statement i read said that they're still planning it um and hopefully that, that is the case um, the idea of going from planning for a hundred thousand or more to zero is unfathomable. But there's a, uh, unfathomable. But there's a lot of that going around. The hall closed a couple of weeks ago indefinitely. Um, the baseball season, which uh, Double Day Field and I'm involved in fundraising for Double Day Field now. Um, Double Day Field books over three hundred games a year. School teams, adult tournaments you know, individual games, all kinds of things, that's not happening. Schools are out of session, you know. So there is, like you said, there's like just a baseball feel year-round, and to not have that happen does change the complexion of the village. On top of it, um, our real kind of year-round business is we have a huge hospital in the village. So that is cranking. <laughs> right? right. So, on one hand, unfortunately. It, it's not like, yeah, right. no, unfortunately, it's not like, uh, geez, business is good at the hospital. It's just, you know, right. we have this kind of epicenter. It's the biggest hospital in the county. Um, so, all of our, you know, we have a lot of friends who are doctors or, uh, you know, married to doctors or connected to doctors. So, we're hit with both kind of crazy parts. <laughs> you know, we have a medical center that is over, you know, I don't want to say overwhelmed because I'm not involved in in knowing the day to day. Uh, And we have a tourist economy that is disappearing, you know, every day. So, you know, hopefully it can all come back, but, you know, you never know, and this is not uh, only a Cooperstown story. You never know who has the resources to get through that. You know, there certainly will be businesses I imagine in Cooperstown and in this country that are going to disappear and not come back. So I think you feel it more strongly in Cooperstown where it's such a small place, uh, but it's certainly not going to be unique to Cooperstown.
0: Absolutely. Uh, At split season, 1981, you can get Jeff on Twitter, jeff-cats.com if you want to contact him. Uh, Interesting book on that season. And, And what I'm looking at now, I was, playing a little, okay, what's best case scenario? What's worst case scenario with what would a baseball season look like? And I immediately went, I went to your book and I went to Wikipedia and I was looking at how many games everybody played. And I said to myself, 110, right. 112 games, if you can get the season going by June 1st and that that's not right now. I mean, it's hard to fathom that. I know what's going on. Yeah, right. Right, especially in New York, but let's face it. New York and LA and Seattle, there may be some differences in different parts of the country versus you know the other 27 baseball teams that you might have to make some adjustments. But let's say let's say optimistic June 1st, you can probably have a similar type of 110, 112 game season, and it'll be almost like a 10k instead of a marathon for uh, for the baseball season. And, I, and I'm wondering as you were reading the book, as you write in the book. Um, is there a certain charm to like a quirky season like that? Cause I know people are going to say, ah, it's not the same. It's not the, you know, the integrity of the sport, but I think it might in a horrible situation, create a different type of feel, uh, in a wacky scenario in a, in a year, that's probably not going to be traditional in any walk of life. Right.
2: There, there are smart ways to handle an abbreviated season. Uh, and there are lessons to be learned uh, from 1981, for sure. The the failings of the split season and the plan derived by the owners was that um, they really just split it into two halves. Uh, the winners of each division, if they were different, would face each other off. The winners, if they were the same, which didn't uh, come to pass, would play the second place team in the second half. What they didn't count for is who had the best record for the whole stretch, which is how the Reds ended up with the best record in Major League Baseball and didn't make the playoffs. And the Cardinals had the best record in the NL East and didn't make the playoffs. So um, there are lessons to be learned from that. Um, you're talking about the uneven amount of games played. Um, in 1972, which was a season delayed by um, a strike, the Red Sox uh, played one less game than the Tigers and finished the half game out of first. They didn't have the Red Sox play that game, which is insane. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they just had to schedule right. a game, you know. So, it's so I weird.
0: Think, they, baseball did so many weird things back in the day. When you look back, the way they figured out home field, scheduling, yeah. just what you said, it, it would never fly today. People would have an, People would be outraged about something like that.
2: They would be. And and there was
0: outreach, like in
2: 81, uh, the first split season plan had um, if the same team won the um, two halves, the team with the second place, the second best record for the year would meet them in the playoffs. But that created a situation that I'll, probably garble it and talk about where if a team finished like close like the Orioles were very close to the Yankees in the first half if the Orioles were in third place in the second half they could kind of lose on purpose to the Yankees to make sure the Yankees won both halves but then the Orioles would have the second best record overall so you had a situation of teams losing on purpose to jockey the situation to make the playoffs so um and and people like Herzog uh, managing the Cardinals and La Russa managing the White Sox saw that right away and very publicly said, "If it means making the playoffs and throwing games, we're throwing games," <laughs> which made them change the whole plan. Um, never underestimate how bad decisions can be made. <laughs> you like to think that history, um, you know, prevents that from happening. Uh, I would think. One thing to make sure of is if the season comes back, everyone has to play the same amount of games. You can't have a situation where because, because of various times or geographies that some team ends up playing 110 games and another 106. You have to make sure <laughs> that everyone has the same amount because those you know, minute differences in the standings come to games played. Um it is better to have a straight season than to have splits. Um the idea in eighty one was that you would gin up a second half pennant race, but pennant races we know take a little while to percolate. Um and actually had they left the season alone, I think uh five teams in the AL East were within a few games of each other if you look at the whole season. Um so I would certainly not advocate kind of Mini seasons or round robins, just have a straight go through, but make sure it's laid out properly.
0: Yeah, they've talked about maybe adding uh, those extra playoff teams because of the shortened season. Maybe having an expanded playoff. I just look at it this way: if you could start June first and give the two days off a month or three, and do a doubleheader, you could probably get one ten, one twelve in. You got to eliminate interleague play. I would make it heavy against the division. Maybe you do if you can one and one against the other divisions. You maybe you eliminate going out to the coast. Maybe the coasts just don't play on the West Coast on the East Coast, and you try to keep everything more towards their area because you're going to have to remake. uh, You have to remake the schedule. I don't think you just pick it up uh, June first and things like that. Uh, So it'll be interesting. Uh, Curious Yankees Dodgers in the World Series. I know this is going to come up, and I remember when the Spurs won the shortened uh, NBA lockout in 1999. I remember Phil Jackson, who had just retired from coaching the Bulls, you know, the second three-peat,
1: had made a right. comment
0: that it wasn't a real championship. And I think that's going to come up with this, whatever kind of season they play. Whoever wins may be considered less than what would normally be considered a championship team. I don't buy that, and I'm wondering, as you did the research on 1981, uh, how was that perceived? Was there that kind of talk back then? Because I, I bet there'll be that talk uh, uh, now, with if whatever this season starts and how long it is.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, in 1981 there's a funny story when the Expos lost um, in the playoffs to the Dodgers and Rick Monday's uh, big ninth-inning home run against Steve Rogers. Bill Lee was like, ah, who the hell wants to win a pennant? in this year anyway. The losers tend to say that. <laughs> There's no one on the nineteen eighty one Dodgers who says, geez, we really aren't the World Series champs that year. So you know it's funny you bring up that it was Phil Jackson who wasn't coaching anymore. If Phil Jackson was coaching and they won, he would have been fine with it. So um I think as long as you have the rules laid out and someone wins then they're the fair winners of that season. I mean, baseball has multiple seasons of uh, less than full schedules. What was it, 95? There was like a two-day strike. So, I mean, that wasn't a full schedule. It was almost a full schedule. In 81, obviously, there was 700 games totally missed that summer. In whatever, 1918, I saw this had come up. The season ended in September. You know, um, I think it was 1918. So there have been situations where where full schedules have been truncated. Um, the winners are the winners, and the losers cry foul. <laughs> right. And and you know? in,
0: and in this season in 1981, if you go to the postseason, there's some classic series. You mentioned the Expos and the Dodgers. The Expos and the Phillies was a good series. L.A. and Houston that year. They were good teams. Yankees, what yeah. people forget, is Milwaukee. Uh, 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 very tough yeah, team. Yeah, that was a great team. Uh, yeah. Before they went to the World Series, they had the Yankees on the hook, if I'm not mistaken, uh, down to yeah. zero. Trying to, trying to look at it here. So you had some – and the World Series wasn't bad either. Uh, there was ridiculous. some drama. I mean, George Steinbrenner George got into a fight with some Dodgers fans and claimed he got yeah. accosted. So – when you look back, I don't think now you're going back many, many years later. Nobody's looking at that season, and yeah, they mentioned the strike, but it's not the prevalent conversation in my opinion about nineteen eighty one not anymore. Uh, do you agree with that
2: yeah, you know it's interesting when you when you watch shows like um m l b network has that thing about like seasons right the eighty one season the strike is you know, a little segment of it, <laughs> you know, it's like, and then the strike happened and then they came back and here's the rest of things that played out. So, uh, and people, and, you know, as much as I think split Seasons a great book and it got great reviews and I'm very proud of it. You know, most people don't want to read about things that upset them, <laughs> you know, people don't want to read about like how they lost their baseball season when they were 11 years old, you know, uh so, as history uh moves forward, um people tend to try to minimize that part, right I mean, when this whole period of of our history ends, you know there's people are gonna look back and say, "You know what? there were many good things that came out of it, <laughs> you know, um, that's just how people kind of deal with difficult situations um so i, I do agree I, th- I think as we get past this, people will look back at the things that made them feel good and not terrible.
0: What'll be interesting is how important baseball could become because here's the scenario I see. And again, I'm being optimistic whether it's June 1st, July 1st, I believe there'll be a baseball season. I really don't believe we're going to be on, you know, no sports for 18 months, like, you know, some of the doom players right. say. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't but I do believe I do believe there will no longer be an NHL season I don't believe the NBA will come back and really there's this and I could tell being out and I I travel into not Manhattan but I go to the city every day you know the boroughs Queens and especially this week after people spend the weekend watching the news and and driving themselves crazy waiting for this to be over over there's a problem people are working they're coping they're dealing with it. you know. Maybe they're doing some things with their family, and they're doing exercise and catching up on things that they normally would push to the side. But right. that energy that you would have for opening day or as a sports fan, the excitement, it's going to be all pent up. And you would think baseball coming back – I know it's cliche, that whole American American baseball. Yeah. You would think that would be a big deal, and regardless, all 30 teams, no matter how good your team is, how bad – tanking i think there's going to be some attendance issues no matter what no right matter how the, the 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 everybody says it is to go to the ballpark i do think people will be excited about their team and excited for baseball and all the criticism about the game that has come out in the last two three four years this might be their chance to push that to the side the sign stealing doesn't seem that big of a deal anymore
1: yeah, the, tanking,
0: right. <laughs> the tanking's not that big of a deal anymore Let's let's enjoy this game for what it is, and and maybe some of these teams will smarten up, and these owners will smarten up, and say, I better throw some competitive ball out on the field. I I can't play for a draft pick, uh, because right. you think this was bad before, in a in a in a post coronavirus world, I don't think people are going to want to go to ballparks uh, unless they absolutely want to enjoy themselves. So it'll be yeah. interesting how baseball how it plays into the country and people. And again, this is so cliche how people will start to to heal because it's going to take a while because everybody's on edge and and everybody's kind of in this, this dream, I think right now. Yeah. I I, I mean, I think you're right in, in one part that, you know,
2: as, as trivial as sports can be and how silly it is, (laughs) you know, it means a lot to everybody, right? It does mean a lot to people and it's a backdrop to their day-to-day life and when it's taken away there's a void i mean even like i don't sit and really watch a lot of nba games but by about nine o'clock i put on an nba game (laughs) and i'll watch it for like an hour the fact that like i'm looking for old mets highlight films (laughs) shows that i need to see something right um i'm much more cynical than you about the owners Because, you know, if there's one thing that fans should learn over time is really the players care about the fans more than owners care about fans. Because players are more connected to the fans than ownership is. In a weird way, though, fans always are on the owner's side. (laughs) They're, They're worried about some billionaire's budget. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so then sure. we're like, you know, get rid of that Mookie Betts. What a piece of garbage he is! It's like, really? Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not worried about John Henry's financial status or about Mookie Betts, sure. well. but between the two of them, it's like you see in the NBA. Why was why is Joel Embiid? Pay, Joel Embiid an employee of the Seventy Sixers. Why is he paying other employees salaries? Why aren't the owners right. who are worth billions? <laughs> doing it why does joel and beat have to do it so you know ownership in all sports tends to take the fans for granted because fans put themselves in that position fans are going to come out fans are going to watch games um ownership is going to figure out how to make the most money off of that <laughs> um so i'm less hopeful that you are that the teams that are kind of geared to tank are not going to tank. I agree. That, that's that's my, unfortunate. My, no. no that's, but, uh... but, but you know what's going to happen is fans get, I think, on the whole, what they want from sports. Or they wouldn't come back, right? Part of it is the joy. Part of it is the anger. <laughs> Part of it sure. is the frustration. Like like I say, I was a Met fan until they traded Seaver. I realized I liked Tom Seaver way more than I liked the Met's. What I gave up in that deal was I don't get the highs of enduring when my team does well, but I never get the lows. The people, you know, like you, who have been like diehard Mets fans forever, that says something, right, about what it means to you, sure. because you probably wouldn't stay in any other relationship your whole life that caused you such misery.
0: <laughs> I know. But, it, but in the end, I, I have to say, and I've said this to a lot of people, the perspective uh, a blown ninth inning, six-run lead, like uh, September of uh, last year, looks a hell of right. a lot better now than no baseball yeah. and,
1: and, and, uh, nothing. and essentially,
0: <laughs> right. and essentially, uh, you know, me and and a bunch of other essential people, you know, if you want to call yourself essential people, whatever your job is, out there on the, on the road. Uh, uh, what's interesting about the Mets, uh, as bad as they were that year, and they won less than forty percent of their games. They weren't too far out of first in the second half. They finished five and a half games back in Montreal. That's not a lot. It was really a tight race in the NL East. They actually, the Mets were pretty much neck and neck in the second half with the Yankees, who wound up going to the World Series. Interesting right. how you, you could have had a scenario where a bad team could have snuck in. It didn't happen, but oh, it's yeah. not that far back. Even the Cubs, six well, games the- out. Cubs were worst team in the right. uh, in, in the National.
2: Right, so that was kind of the artistic failure of having a a second-half season, which was like when September rolled around and teams had to plan ahead for postseason, you had like really bad teams, like full-year bad teams, like the Mets, like the Blue Jays, printing playoff tickets because there was a chance they could get in. Um, What's interesting about that 81 Mets, even though Torrey got fired on the last day of the season, Um, the seeds of what was to come are there, right? So Mookie's there. You start seeing this little bit of youth and life that at least would be leveraged into, you know, the success of 84 that started that whole, you know, revival period. So, you know, it seems like a completely different Met era, 1981, but 84 is really close, (laughs) you know? So... Um, it's kind of amazing to see the teams that would rise in the 80s start to get formed in the early 80s.
0: Records. Let's throw a crazy scenario. Now, you mentioned Fernando Mania, and, he, and that is a very popular season. Again, right. nobody talks about how he made only 25 starts. He had 11 complete games, eight shutouts. I mean, geez, that's like, what, four or five teams worth of complete games and shutouts, yeah, right? Right. right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah you know, it's a good season. It's it's when you break it down from advanced statistics, it's maybe not as sexy as the art right. stated back then. But let's say someone hits four hundred. Now no one's gonna be breaking home run records. If they do then right. something's <laughs> crazy. And no one's gonna be getting three hundred strikeouts or even two hundred strikeouts right. and and breaking saves records. But somebody could hit four hundred in a short right. season, maybe.
2: That's and true.
0: I mean that's, that's very easier. I mean, very interesting how that's been. right. Maybe somebody breaks the 1.12 ERA of Bob Gibson. I doubt right. it, but maybe that happens. Yeah. How will that look? I don't know when you did the research for the book, how people have looked at maybe some of the performances of various individuals, because again, I know in 1994, we could have that conversation, that debate. That was a whole different situation. 1995, mm-hmm. 144 not the end of the world. Albert Bell hits 50 home runs in that short season. Right. But if Tony Gwynn had 400 in 1995, would people have said, well, yeah"? He had right. Well, At
2: 18 games. He so, in, wasn't he close in
0: 1994? In 94, 94, yeah. He was making his hit. way. Yeah, he was making his way. And, and, right. and you can't assume. And Matt Williams, the pace assumed he was going to break right. we'll that, that, that time Maris's right. record. You can't assume that. Right. Um, but it'll be interesting I, I, how that works. What
2: people end up looking back to in '81 um, is not necessarily a single season record that would have taken place, but what it meant to career totals of people. Um, Harold Baines is an interesting issue. Uh, you know, Hall of Famer now and a controversial Hall of Famer in terms of of what he was. Harold Baines is what a hundred something hits away from three thousand, and he missed chunks of games in 81 for the strike in 94 for the strike in 95 in another scenario Harold Baines retires with 3000 hits and no one debates that he's a hall of famer because that still is kind of there's no 3000 hit guy who doesn't get in the hall of fame um so you look at these kind of gaps um i can't think off the top of my head who's got like big career numbers right now, but if all of a sudden someone misses a full year, I mean we talk a lot about the war years, right? And right. you know, I've been I've been reading um stuff about Bob Feller. I mean Bob Seller Bob Feller lost four years where he probably would have averaged twenty five wins a year. And then he goes from having two hundred and sixty something wins lifetime to three hundred sixty wins. And even though people talk about Feller as one of the all time greats, that would have put him at a different level. Ted Williams would have had 600 homers, and he would have been one of, at the time, well, at the time, he would have been only the second person, you know, but even through the 70s, he would have been one of four people, right? So um, when you lose big chunks of seasons, it ends up affecting people's career numbers. And that does, I think, in the analytics world, that doesn't matter as much. But certainly, you look at a guy like Trout, who's on pace to be really one of the all-time greats already is one of the all-time greats. But if you lose a full season, you lose a full season of a career. (laughs) That's a lot of numbers. That's a lot of numbers. It um, it
0: will, it will go down. If it's 112, 81 game season, people may say, give him another 81 games. He would have done this or give him this. Yeah. Whatever. People have that conversation.
2: I I did want to say something
0: um, uh, earlier. That, you know, you had mentioned
2: about this conversation about an extra level of TV playoffs. Um, And in 81, when they added the division series, um, and it took a lot of years after that to end up with the wild card. When did that start in 95? So 14 years later. Um, But that was something people like uh, Bud Selig at the Brewers at the time, Kuhn the commissioner, they wanted that extra level level of playoffs. So they saw the strike as a lever <laughs> to get that. MLB wants an extra level of playoffs. And if they can use this lever to get it, they'll get it.
1: Well, because when I they introduced
2: so. when they introduced that idea and floated that idea, people were very negative about it. Yeah. But if they say, well, Kind of an entail needing an extra level, but it's only for this year. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden we'll be watching. You know, that's two out of three, which will become best four out of seven, and then the playoffs will start mid-September and it
0: and it could be you a know, test second too. week you, in November. You got to think out of the box. You got to think out of the box now. This yeah. this season is is not going to be normal, and this no. world's not going to be normal. Uh, for this year, uh, it's it's going to be a wacky year and it may not yeah. settle down into the fall. And, and look at the NFL. They're talking about the NFL being delayed, but they're the luckiest ones of the group because they're so far yeah. away that maybe they can <laughs> clear up. The NFL is leaving a, leading a charm life, but they've got to think out yeah. of the box. Maybe they test tube some things and what have you. Okay, last thing before I let you go, and by the way, it's yeah. season, season uh, 1981. Give me what normally uh, Jeff Katz would be doing on opening day. So let's pretend we didn't have any kind of virus scenario. What would you be doing on opening day? Uh, you know, uh, wh- wh- how take us through your day real quick. Um, you know, the funny thing about being in
2: Cooperstown, the home of baseball, we used to say it was the birthplace, but we all know that's a myth, uh, is you're very far from Major League Baseball. I lived in Chicago for a lot of years, had cup season tickets, so I spent a lot of time at Major League games. But opening day in Cooperstown, I'd have the TV on from morning to night and just either sit and watch or just kind of you know visit um in the last few years i've kind of ducked down to game two like i was at yankee stadium game two a couple of years ago i kind of love game two because no one goes Hmm. (laughs) the second game of the year is empty um so i would probably be looking or already have lined up some tickets for that um First week, my son lives in Boston now, um so we try to go to like a Red Sox game every year. um so, I would be trying to figure out how to plan my kind of major league visits for the year, but opening day is the best, you know, and there's you know there's a real sadness to not having the festivities
0: of opening day absolutely
2: so, well, so tomorrow it, I'll probably look at baseball cards and find some old YouTube video well,
0: listen. You got to always be optimistic. You got to always think of the uh, of the best, even in a bad situation. And if going back to your childhood baseball cards, watching some old YouTube videos gets you through this, then that's the way to go. Exactly. Hey Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, great catching up with you. We'll be in touch again. Be well. Split season nineteen eighty one. Great book, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Great talking to you again. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. That's uh, Jeff Katz. Split season nineteen eighty one. And uh, it's a great book, interesting way of looking at things. We're trying to mix it up here on the Talking Mets podcast, figure out a way to keep the podcast going, keep you guys entertained during a very difficult time, very very difficult situation. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. You never know who's going to stop by the Talking Mets podcast. Back on June sixteenth, 2019, Hall of Famer, Mike Piazza talked about the transition from Los Angeles to New York. Dude, it was a huge environmental shift. I mean, I'm living on the beach in Los Angeles, and uh, you know, walking around in flip flops and sandals,
2: and then getting in a car and driving to Dodger Stadium, and the fans love me, and and the, the, the girls love me, and everyone's screaming your name. And then next thing you know, you're in the you know the cauldron that is New York
0: because. Uh, it's just, it was a different environment and, and it was more laid back in Los Angeles um, he, until my contract
2: dispute I never got booed in LA so when I was getting booed here it was like a new experience and I really didn't know how to handle it and then I eventually came around and I figured it out that New York fans are passionate they have a blue-collar attitude. They just—they love their
0: team, and I mentioned that in my Hall of Fame speech.
2: I think it made me better.
0: Listen to this and more on the Talking Mets podcast at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Uh, Jeff Katz, I thought he was really good. I thought he did a nice job, and hopefully that got your mind off of some things. And, and maybe the book could be something that could distract you while you're, if you're, I'm hoping everybody's listening is working, and then you're a essential worker and you're staying safe. If you're not working, I hope you get back to work soon, and I hope your job is safe. And in the interim, maybe reading a little bit about the history of baseball in a wacky season and thinking about how that's going to apply to 2020 could, could give you a nice distraction that you need at this uh, current time. So um, th- thought you enjoyed it, and you can check him out on uh, Twitter and, and at Split Season 1981 and, and check out the book Split Season. It's, uh, it's a good read. Um, where does this leave me? Well, he, like I said during the segment, I hope from all of this that when baseball does come back and when life starts to trickle back to normal, and it will. I really believe it will you start to appreciate a little more what we have. You start to think about what gets you angry and what we focus on. Does sign stealing really look all that important right now? And maybe baseball, and it is a cliche, because maybe you're an NFL fan as as well, and and maybe the NFL, baseball doesn't come back, and maybe the NFL is what heals the country when it's all said and done. But you're going to need something to bring people together and back to normal. And it's going to be hard, because every state is going to have a different situation. But I know that this game has had a chance because it's with us every day and because it has that intimacy of uh, almost like you, you treat these teams like a member of the family throughout the year because you're you're so engrossed in it, whether it's listening to this show, talk radio, going every night watching on TV, and and it, it's a weird situation. It's not NFL, which is once a week and then a rest, or I know the NBA is a long season, but that's not night in and night out. And, and although that... You, you get to know those players sometimes even better because of the kind of sport it is and the personality. It's just not the same. So I think it'll bring a better appreciation for baseball. I hope that all the things that we've trashed it about, the league looks back and says, we need to improve and not do gimmicky type things, but really as an industry, the owners start to rethink, how can we compete every year? How can we rebuild responsibly without irresponsibly spending money just to, throw money just to have a, a half cock team out there winning 75 games. you got to start to look at this as an entertainment product and your obligation as an owner and as a GM is to have the best long-term organizational position as possible. But I don't think you have to actively lose and put embarrassingly bad teams out there to do that. And I think it's harming the game. And I think a lot of the things and a lot of the emotion taken out of the game because we're trying to put everything in a linear statistic, we got to really rethink that stuff. And and hopefully this situation, having the game taken away from us and maybe taken away from us for a whole year, I, I don't believe that will happen. But don't put that aside and don't think that that's not on the table. I know what Rob Manfred said, and I do believe this crisis will be over sooner rather than later. But having something important taken away from you, putting in the context of what's going on, Maybe we'll appreciate it more. Maybe we'll treat how we cover these teams better. Maybe we'll look at players in a different way. I'm not going to say that. We all know it's going to go back to normal eventually, and we're going to complain and gripe and, and hate on people. But start to think from a, and I always try to do that on this this podcast, this program, think about the big picture. These are human beings. uh their, what they're going through, how the teams are looking at things, and it's not making excuses or being a team apologist. It's the real life. It's the real world. So, hopefully, that's that's something you could take away from all that. And of course, like I said the last time, if you haven't noticed it right now, right now, those that are holding up our economy—the the truck drivers, the healthcare workers, those that are keeping us safe, like fire and police, the grocery clerks, the warehouse people, uh, you know, customer service people, whether it's Amazon or or a local business. All these people that are faceless, all these people that you take for granted and, and probably are the lower paid scale out of the food chain, the, the economic food chain, that's what's holding everything up right now. Because without that, you have total anarchy. It's not the Pete Alonzo's. It's not the CEOs. It's not the – I mean it's really not sometimes the politicians. Um, it's these people because they're keeping this very tenuous situation together. So that while we're sitting home waiting for the world to go back to normal or working to get the world back to normal, um, they're keeping us alive and they're keeping us with the bare essentials. Right now it's about the bare essentials. It's not about the the medallion. It's about what we need just to keep going until we could get back to a better place. So I don't want to get on a soapbox. That's my two cents. I hope you enjoyed the program. Of course, you can check me out all the time at the Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Stay healthy, stay safe. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast very soon. Let's see how things go. Be well, everybody.